Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with Grammy-winning jazz pianist and composer Chris Davis. It was an honor to catch up with this modern legend about her new 2023 CD, Live at the Village Vanguard. Following in the footsteps of Shirley Horn and Jerry Allen with the release of Live at the Vanguard, she joins the handful of women instrumentalists to record at the Legendary Club. In addition to creating some of the most visionary creative music around, she maintains a career as an in-demand international performer, runs a record label, and champions the notion of being equal and inclusivity in jazz at the Berkeley Institute of Jazz and Gender Justice. In early 2023, she became the first of three women to win the Grammy Award for Best Jazz Instrumental Album. We cover some great ground here. Enjoy this interview. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Wonderful. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Where Thank are you, you for- located? I'm in Kansas City, Missouri. Okay, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right in one of the original cradles, so... Um, it's so you're up in New York, correct? I'm um, actually uh, just outside of Boston. Okay, all right, yeah. excellent. Well, it, it's an honor to be able to speak with you. I appreciate you taking a minute out today. Absolutely, thanks for having me. You bet. So, before we get into the live at the Village Vanguard album, you know, we all went through quite a thing, especially the world of jazz with the pandemic. How did you survive those three years? How did you get through it? And how has it changed you now that we're kind of in the quote unquote post-pandemic era of our lives? Well, at first I was happy, like many of us, to just have more free time (laughs) and uh, clear my schedule a little bit. Um, But of course, as time went by, I was really missing playing with people. I, that's how I, um, how the creative juices start flowing when I'm playing other people's music, when we're engaged in this, you know, musical conversation. Um, and so we did a few of those um, streaming projects where you record something and send it around and somebody records something on top of it. And, and that was okay for a little while, but also that got a little frustrating. <laughs> I really, I feed off of having that energy in the room with me. So, um, you know, we kind of stopped doing that and I did a little bit of writing, but um, it was just less music. It was less, you know, creativity. And I really felt it. I felt like a piece of me was missing. Um, and so as we come back into um, playing more, playing live, uh, I just, I feel invigorated to, to play, to engage with audiences, um, you know, and playing in other groups again and, and getting inspired by other artists and writing music. So it's all back. But the pandemic was was really challenging for me and my creative practice. And, you know, the thing that amazes me uh, interviewing and covering jazz for, for a while now is that there was a lot of musicians that questioned kind of their whether they were a musician still or what's going on. There was like this sense of loss that went into it. Were there any senses with you where you were like, what am I doing? What's going on? Did, were, there, were there any existential notions you had to overcome? I just felt like if this is how it's going to continue, <laughs> where we're going to be playing, making music online and not in person and making it remotely, that this might not be the path forward for me. Um, when I was a kid, I played classical music, classical piano, and I wanted to quit a few times. And my mom said, you know, you got to stick stick with it until the end of the year. And Usually I would be back in, but I felt it was a very lonely experience. And when I started playing jazz in middle school um, and playing with other people and having that connection and developing something together, that was the moment where I 
thought, oh, this is what I want to do. I want to be be a musician, um, be a jazz pianist, and make music with others. So I, I sort of was taken back to that moment of a kid as like, is this is this the way forward? I'm not sure. Um, but I'm I'm really glad that live performance is back. You know, we're still audiences are coming back slowly, so we feel a little bit of a loss there. Um, but yeah, I'm just I'm glad that it's happening, and you know, hope people will start coming out more. Even with the audiences that are there now, do you sense that there's a difference in the room now? There's a different level of appreciation or attention to what's going on with musicians on stage. I I guess so. You know. <laughs> it's hard to it's hard to say i mean sometimes i feel like right now audiences just want to feel that connection of of the you know group that's performing the energy the experience the process of discovery and um that exchange with the audience and the player um i think that that's that's the most important thing that the audiences are seeking especially jazz audiences um right now um, and sometimes I feel like there's more of a desire to be, want to be entertained than sort of um, challenged, which is for me, the, the reason I kind of got into this music was looking more at innovation and challenging the status quo of certain things in the music. Um, and that's kind of what this record also does. It's just what I'm naturally drawn to or sort of the, the sort of fringes, the outsides of the music and seeing what's possible. Um, but sometimes I feel like the audiences are just looking for entertainment in a way or you know something that they recognize, which has always been the case. Um, but I do feel like there's sometimes a little bit of a disconnect there, whereas before the pandemic, I felt like audiences were coming in to really be challenged and um, you know exposed to some new things. And I think that was my hope during this pandemic is that people would embrace something that's more organic and artistically driven like jazz, that there would be this level of, like you mentioned with entertainment that would take a side seat and they would understand the, 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 the spontaneity, the improv, the, the artistry that goes into this. And I think there is a level of that, that probably is more appreciated, which is why I was asking about the audience. I know in Kansas City, there's definitely more rapt attention when people are performing. And I think there's probably some more people out there because people were listening to radio more. They were kind of tuning in and listening more versus running around. So um, I, I think ultimately at the end of the day, it probably voted pretty well. But I was hoping there was going to be a sea change. But, you know, I was wishful thinking, you know, so. Yeah. And I, and I think also, I mean, during the pandemic and also, of course, because of social media, we're, our attention spans are shorter. And so we're not used to sitting and listening to an hour long performance and not checking our phones or, you know, what else is going on, but to be totally present and to be taken on a journey with the artist. I think that's just really hard, especially for young audiences who don't even have any kind of relationship with that experience. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in some some ways it's related to the pandemic and I think the pandemic exacerbated that experience, but um, it's interesting to see what's going to happen, you know, as time goes by where we're just looking for this instant gratification that we get it all the time from social media and the internet, um, how that's going to play out in live performance. And I think that's where that sort of entertainment experience or what I'm maybe perceiving as I'm out playing, um, you know, is, I don't know, it's just more, I don't know why I feel it's more 
it's there, it's prevalent, but um, yeah. it just it does feel a little different. Well, and I think this advent of AI and the fact that things can get mimicked and it just it's the acceleration of the human brain, you know, and where we're at. And younger generations are definitely like that. They have everything at their fingertips and they want it right now. So, you know, the, the one thing about jazz performances, you just it, it's it's something you just need to sink in and let it soak in. It's almost like listening to an LP from cover to cover. You know, it's just a good thing to have that immersive experience. Um, yeah, exactly. And I remember like when I was living in New York, I was taking the subway and um, the Brooklyn Academy of Music had had this like big um, uh, advertising thing going on in the in the uh, subway that said like, you know, it had pictures of, of the some of the um, productions they were putting on like dance and they would say like they would show the dance and then they would show this person like sitting there thinking about it like a week later and going like and then it hits you <laughs> and it's kind of how it is it's like sometimes sometimes you have an emotional response in the moment and sometimes you know it's a week later or a year later and you think back to that thing and so we have to i mean uh, we have to expose ourselves to new and surprising things and um you know again we'll never know when it's we'll never know when it's going to hit us yeah, for sure. So it has to feel, I would think, rather triumphant to have such a wonderful live album. Not only is it live, it's coming from the Village Vanguard. How does this release feel just on a cerebral level for you? Um, well, you know, I've, I lived in New York for 20 years and I went to the Vanguard all the time and I saw so many incredible bands. Um, so the sound of the room is like, it's very clear in my ear. Um, but I saw more mainstream things there at the Vanguard than, you know, maybe what this project is. Um, I feel like the project is, you know, it's accessible, but it also brings in elements of experimental approaches and bringing in different um, languages and cultures and um, traditions into this particular project. So the fact that we could bring a DJ into the Vanguard and include that in a sort of more traditional piano, guitar, quartet, um, instrumentation it was really exciting and the fact that they were open to it you know was great and I wanted to prepare the piano and put materials in the back of the strings and I, I called them I said is, is this okay like <laughs> I do this often um, but I just want to get your permission and they were they were totally you know excited about it so um, I don't know just feeling like the music can evolve that we can take these risks take um, you know, challenge the audience through maybe things that are, um, you know, recognizable, but presented in a different kind of way, a different kind of format and sculpture, um, you know, can be, can be really cool. And I'm just so glad the Vanguard was open to it. Well, and I think that's kind of what's going on with jazz with a lot of young players and a lot of new sounds and kind of the way Miles evolved throughout his life. There was this level of bringing in new elements and taking the old and the new world. And that's kind of, the idea isn't it to a certain degree of this evolved art form known as jazz it is you know and that's that's why i got into the music but i do feel that there is this sort of divide in jazz of like the entertainment side of of audience is coming to to see a performance that they know that they're going to recognize something that they're going to feel comfortable and it's going to be it is going to be a source of entertainment whereas the audiences that come to be challenged that want to hear something new they want to engage in the process. Um, for me, those are two different audiences and different rooms, you know, sort of lean one way or the other. Um, and the Vanguard kind of does both. So 
I was I was excited that you know we could we could do this. So what are you hoping the listener gets from this Vanguard album? Well, I'm I'm pointing to some artists that have passed that I feel are really important um, to the jazz tradition and the heritage of the music. Um, certainly Wayne Shorter, who we just lost. We recorded one of his pieces called Dolores. Um, we recorded a piece of Jerry Allen's, who's a wonderful pianist um, and composer. Um, we recorded um, a composition by Ronald Shannon Jackson and his group, the Decoding Society, um, which you know I teach at Berkeley, and not a lot of students are familiar with that name. Um, so it's nice to be able to include some artists that you know maybe um, we don't want to lose them. You know, we don't want to lose their music and their sound, and so I'm happy that we could incorporate it into the project. Um, we're also pointing to some artists in the classical, contemporary classical music, like um, Stockhausen is, we have these clips of him speaking and interacting with the music. Um, and uh, certainly Olivier Messiaen was a really important influence for me. And so you hear these kind of um, bird call pieces and language that he, he, he used in his music um, sort of, you know, throughout the, throughout the set. So there's, there's lots of references both to jazz and classical and, um, other various genres and styles. Um, Trevor Dunn, who's a wonderful bassist on the recording, um, he, you know, is a wonderful jazz bassist and classical bassist, but he also plays in a metal band called Mr. Bungle. Um, and, you know, Val's from Haiti. She brings this Haitian tradition to what she's doing on the turntables and percussion. Um, so it's just kind of like a, a melting pot of different styles and ideas. And that's something I've always been drawn to. Um, it's creating a space for different artists from different places to find a middle ground and make music together. So of all the shows that you've witnessed with your own eyes at the Vanguard, what was one of the most memorable ones? What really left an impression on you? Um, you know, I would go to see Paul Motion uh, quite often whenever he'd play, and I saw um, the Electric Bebop Band, which was really cool. Um, but one of my favorite shows I saw was Masabumi Kikuchi, who's a wonderful pianist and passed probably about eight or seven or eight years ago. I don't know, time's <laughs> a little fluid these days. Right. Um, but he had this really cool approach. I mean, as he was getting older, he was sort of thinking about stripping back um, language and ideas and leaving space for interaction and just finding like the essence of, of the thing that he was trying to get to. So you really hear like all this space and these moments where things come together, but in general, you just feel this, this sort of aura of searching, um, which was what I took from that experience and hearing that trio. Um, and I just love that idea of, of searching and not being afraid to strip things back, make things simpler, you know, find, find your way in connection with the other artists. So you've been at this for quite a while and you've done it in varying capacities, whether you're recording or you're performing or you're teaching over all of these years of doing something you clearly love. What do you like the best about being a professional musician slash educator? Well, I really love performing and touring. I was just out with Dave Holland. He has a new quartet and um, 
I hadn't been out on the road for three weeks straight in uh, many years, <laughs> yeah. um, partially because of the pandemic and partially because I'm a mom and a teacher and, you know, a busy life doing all sorts of things. Um, but it was great to just be out playing every day. And it, it sort of reminded me like, oh, yeah, to be able to revisit the same music every day with the same people and feel like it develops over a period of time is, is so rewarding. Um, so in terms of being a performer and player that that might be like my most favorite thing um, is to be out there if, if at all possible. <laughs> yeah. So my next question is kind of a two parter. First of all, we get off the phone and a jazz DeLorean pulls up. You can get in there and you can punch in the digits and go see anybody in the history of jazz that you haven't seen. Who would you love to have seen? Ooh, I think I would love to have seen our Tatum. Yeah. Yeah. What about now of the modern players that are out there right now? Is there someone that you're really itching and hoping to see live? You know, I'm sort of curious to hear uh, Christian McBride's band, New John. I, I heard their Tiny Desk concert, and um, I played with Nasheed on this tour with Dave, and I just love his playing. And uh, the clip that I heard sounded really cool, so I'm, I'm sort of curious about that band. Yeah. I mostly like to hear projects... I want to hear the interaction between the group. That's always the, the most interesting thing to me. So bringing in those players that he's, he's, you know, connected. Um, I'm yeah. curious about that band. So, you know, the one thing that I, I heard from a lot of musicians while this pandemic was going on was that there was players that just literally had to leave big cities. They couldn't afford rent. No gigs were happening and they had to get out. There was kind of some worry about universities and colleges, whether the enrollment would work. It seems to me that things have gotten even better now that we've come back. There's a, a lot of young cats that are out there that want to play. Cities are full of shows. Clubs stayed open. What's kind of your perspective on what's going on in the jazz community now that we've kind of come out and things are, albums are coming out more. There's more live shows. What's your take on it? Um, well, you know, as I mentioned, I teach at Berkeley and yeah. after the pandemic or where we say the end of the pandemic was um maybe in 2022 we had the biggest incoming group of students ever at berkeley wow um, so music is live and well young people want to play it um and study it and work in it so that's that's exciting um i just moved to boston last year and uh things are slowly opening up i'm playing at the regatta bar Next week, I think it's the first show that they've had since the pandemic. Um, so I still feel like things are, you know, opening, like there's still some remnants of, of COVID and, and the pandemic and, um, but it's, it's coming back, you know? And then of course, as you mentioned, like all the festivals are happening, touring's happening. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's back, you know, people still wanna hear live music. Yeah, for sure. So very simply put, why do you love jazz? I love jazz. When I got into jazz, as I mentioned, as a kid, I, when I was 13, I said, this is it. I want to be a jazz musician. And I think the reason was because I was hearing people like Herbie Hancock and Thelonious Monk and Keith Jarrett, who um, I could see that they were building off of something and then bringing in their own ideas and language um, and really were innovators in the music. And I thought, that's really cool. Like, I want to I want to challenge that status quo and draw on tradition, but then see if I can 
um, find my own voice in this music and bring something different. So that's always been the draw is, and when people ask me what the word jazz means, I always say that it means innovation and improvisation. Of course, that word means different, something different to everyone. And yeah. some people hate that word. It's right. <laughs> polarizing, but, yeah. um, that's why I got into the music and, you know, that's why I'm still in it. So I'm, I'm sticking with my definition. Absolutely. And you're doing wonderful. So do you have, what's your itinerary look like? Are you, are you stay pretty busy with live shows? How's everything kind of spreading out for you as we get towards the colder months? It's always a mix because I'm teaching again at Berkeley and I'm a mom and um, I've run a record label and, and then I'm performing and I'm doing side person work and leader work. So um, it's, it's going well. I try to like schedule time where I'm like just playing or I'm just writing um, or like because I'm teaching now, you know, I'm sort of focusing on that. So it, it goes and it feels balanced, but it goes in kind of modules <laughs> over the over the year. Um, so this this month I'm playing a couple of times in Boston and then I'm playing at the Monterey Jazz Festival with Diatom Ribbons and also with Terry Lynn Carrington's group New Standards. Um, there's some, there's some shows coming up in January in between, uh, semesters at Berkeley. I'll be again at the Vanguard with a new trio with Jonathan Blake and Robert Hurst. Um, and then we'll record a, a trio album at the end of that. So there's a lot of stuff, you know, coming up, exciting things. And I'm sure yeah. I'll be doing more, more performances with Dave Holland and hopefully, um, Fred Hirsch coming up and. Yeah, lots of lots of different things, lots of different. I like when there's a lot of variety. Oh, yeah. Sounds like it. Yeah. And it's so good to see that everybody's out and playing and things are picking back up. So it's wonderful. So Live at the Vanguard came out September 1. Um, best place, Bandcamp for people to pick this up. Yep. Perfect. Okay. And then streaming everywhere and anywhere that music can be heard. Exactly. Wonderful. Yeah. Chris, this has been a profound honor. Thank you so much. I've had you on the show quite a bit. You're such a pillar in this world of jazz music. So I appreciate you taking a minute out for Neon Jazz today. Oh, thanks so much. And thanks for your great questions. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players and minds in Boston, New York City, Kansas City, and spots all over the globe, giving fans all that jazz. Thanks to Chris for her time, energy, and cool. If you want to hear more Neon Jazz interviews, you can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to us at YouTube. And for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.